It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, October 14th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening every day. We'd love it if you did. And if you do, thank you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Many ways to listen live, including on our great affiliates all across the country. And if you can't listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, there's a podcast on demand free every day. That's GuyBensonShow.com. We are broadcasting from WISN, 11.30 a.m. in Milwaukee, Wisconsin today. Very grateful for their hospitality. Had an event this morning in Wisconsin. Last night in Wisconsin, I did have some cheese. I did have some beer. And I feel like I'm acclimating rather well to sort of the local customs. In fact, the beer that I had last night was Spotted Cow. Have you heard of Spotted Cow? It is a Wisconsin-only beer. It is only available for sale in Wisconsin. And it was on draft at my hotel, so I had a pint, and it is really good. And I was with a group of conservatives, and one of them said, you know, it's a very liberal company. It's just a lib company with Spotted Cow. And I said, I don't care. It's just it's a delicious product. It's sort of my same attitude on Ben & Jerry's ice cream. I'm just not going to allow my choice in beer and ice cream to be dictated by politics. Right? I'm going to boycott thing or whatever. It's it's going to be for a very big reason and very, very seldom. And guess what? That Lib beer, ooh, it tasted so good. So hello, Wisconsin. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Milwaukee in particular. Now, we have a lot to get to on the show today. I want to give you our lineup here, starting with Peter Ducey, White House correspondent in Fox News. He'll be here uh, later this hour. President gave a little spiel earlier today. He walked out. He spoke for six six or seven minutes again, similar to what we saw yesterday. This time it was on COVID. He took no questions again, walking away as people shouted questions. I guess they've just decided it's the plan. We'll ask Peter Ducey about that. Andy McCarthy will be here in the next hour. Quite a bit to get to with him, including questions about Vaccine mandates from a legal perspective and this DOJ intervention involving parents and school board meetings, the attorney general getting involved in the FBI. Andy is a former federal prosecutor. He has thoughts on this and we will get them and bring them to you here. Kennedy will also join us in the next hour. Host of Kennedy on Fox Business Network. Uh, She had a throwdown yesterday on the air. We will play that and get her response and also not. Uh, Last, I should say, but not least in our final hour, Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, sports guy, politics guy, always thoughtful on cultural stuff. We will pick his brain as well. So we are packed on this Thursday. We've also got a little vacation coming up. We'll tell you about that in the home stretch at the end of the show. As we start the show, let's bring you a Fox News alert. Case count in the United States officially on COVID all in 44.6 million. The real number is much higher. 
The death toll is 719,725. That's the American death toll from COVID, although we talk about this distinction between people who died with COVID versus people who died of COVID. Those distinctions are not really made in the statistics. But needless to say, this has been a terrible and deadly and ongoing pandemic. The Dow is up today over 500 points, trading and getting sort of close to the 35,000 range again. We'll keep an eye on that as the markets close in 50 minutes back on the East Coast in New York. I want to start with this since we ran through the stats on COVID. There was a CBS News story with a headline that came out today. And it just, I think, exemplifies the types of headlines and stories that seem to be designed. They cannot be accidental. They often are directed at Florida and, by extension, the governor of Florida. CBS really seems to have it in for Ron DeSantis, right, from their absolute abject self-humiliation on the COVID uh, vaccination distribution story on 60 Minutes that totally blew up in their faces They had a segment recently on their national morning show that was trying to suggest that masking and schooling is absolutely essential, and they highlighted one particular family, and I actually addressed that segment a little bit on the air here, but I also wrote about it at length last week at townhall.com with a lot of uh, information and context, and you can go back and look that up on the tip sheet at townhall.com. Here's another one. This is from CBS News nationally. Headline, 17 employees in one Florida school district have died from COVID-19 since the school year began in August. So we told you recently, remember, everyone was saying, oh, gosh, DeSantis is not requiring masks in schools, just like he didn't last year, just like the U.K. is not, just like the E.U. in many places is not. But they're doing it in Florida, and this is terrible, and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be death because of it. That was the line that they all repeated ad nauseum. Biden was saying it, all of it. Totally ignoring the outcomes and evidence and data from the other side of the Atlantic that we have mentioned here many, many times. And then in the first full month of school in Florida, the month of September, we brought you those statistics from the Departments of Health and Education in the state. And there was zero statistical difference, none, between the counties where there were masks required in defiance of the state policy, or masks optional, which was the state policy. The outcomes in terms of juvenile case counts, in terms of community spread, were identical. Mask or no mask in schools, no difference. But you've got people so committed to this, no matter what, committed to the superstition. Right, The education secretary under President Biden was out there tweeting misinformation, mischaracterizing studies to try to prop up the case for masking kids in schools. There are people that are invested in this quote-unquote truth, right? Larger truth, if you will. That doesn't require actual evidence or data. They just know it to be true. This is, like a, this is why I call it a superstition on this particular front. And so they are going to keep that story, that narrative alive, no matter what. And what they did in this case was they offered a headline that would suggest, oh, gosh, Ron DeSantis forced these people back into schools with no masks and a bunch of them are dropping dead. 
of course, it is very sad that anyone is dying with or from COVID. We don't want to see excess deaths. Deaths are very tragic, horrible things. When they are used or manipulated or mischaracterized to make a political point, that is also gravely gross and unfair. If you read the story and scroll down beyond the headline and the very opening of these 17 employees in the one Florida school district who've died since the school year began, you find out that five of them got sick, got COVID before the school year even started. So right out of the gate, I don't know why they put them. I guess they want to make the number look as big as possible. 17 employees from this one district have died. We know for a fact that five of them did not contract COVID in schools because schools were not open yet when they contracted COVID, but they're added into this total. And then of the other 12, officials say, quote, it's difficult and perhaps impossible to determine how or where transmission occurred meaning in or out of school, in the community or inside school walls, they have no idea. They also in the story don't mention if these people were vaccinated or unvaccinated. But from my perspective, and I don't think this is terribly subtle, the point of this headline, the point of this tweet from CBS News is to suggest and to have people who aren't going to read any further just to leave the impression That Ron DeSantis did this. I will remind you, Ron DeSantis did not ban anyone from wearing masks. Every single person who would like to wear a mask in a school in Florida has the absolute right to wear a mask. They are not banned. They are just optional with opt-outs for some parents making decisions for their kids. So masks are not banned. These people, some of them may have worn masks and contracted COVID anyway. We don't know if they got COVID in schools. We know from previous data that schools are one of the least likely places that anyone catches COVID. So we have not a clue if any of these 17 people actually contracted COVID in a school building. We have no idea. We know for a fact that five of them definitely did not. They don't know about the other 12, but they frame it anyway as a Florida schools outbreak death scenario because they want to stick it. To the governor. And the details and the facts don't matter. Now, relatedly, I just want to play you this clip. I love this exchange. This was on Bloomberg TV earlier in the week. There's a reporter called Emily Chang. She was interviewing a tech venture capitalist called David Sachs, who has donated to Ron DeSantis. And she was trying to shame him, basically, for donating to Ron DeSantis. And she seemed absolutely perplexed, baffled. How could you justify giving money to this man? And I think David Sachs was excellent in the way that he parried, the way that he handled these questions from the journalist. Listen to cut 18. But why do you support such a divisive candidate, especially given the global health crisis we are still facing? Why why is he inherently more divisive than, say, Gavin Newsom or someone on the other side of the spectrum? See, what I would argue is that words like polarizing and divisiveness, they, they assume a normative baseline in which everybody agrees, everyone in the tech industry agrees because they all come from a certain information bubble. And anyone who deviates from that orthodoxy is perceived as divisive. So, but why DeSantis over many of the other candidates who you could host fundraisers for? I mean, I know you're bullish on Florida, but DeSantis and and Mayor Suarez, who was actually on the show earlier this hour, are on different ends of the spectrum. I've donated to Suarez too. 
but uh, but I like both of them. I like Suarez because he's been extremely welcoming towards the tech ecosystem in Miami. I think that's a smart strategy. I don't get why the politicians in San Francisco don't do that. And he went on to say that he likes DeSantis, he likes his policies, and I love the point that he made about the word choice, divisive. Why do you attach it to this guy as opposed to this guy, this candidate versus that candidate? And it often comes back, comes uh, back rather to what the journalist believes to begin with, which is conservatives, Republicans are bad, people like Ron DeSantis are bad, and the other people are good. Just a, a pretty glaring example of that phenomenon, and he, I think, did a very nice job calmly explaining it to her. On media bias, on that topic, a shocking, maybe not that shocking, admission from Katie Couric, some cleanup that she did for Ruth Bader Ginsburg in an interview conducted before RBG died. She's admitting to this in her new book. We will tell you what she did and react straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin today, it's the Guy Benson Show. Well, this is just amazing. I called it shocking before the break, then I questioned that immediately. Is it really shocking? Katie Couric, longtime journalist, NBC, CBS, Yahoo News, elsewhere. She's got a new book out. It's a memoir. And apparently she's just like putting it all out there. She's dumping on former colleagues, gossip, all this stuff. Just a juicy tell-all. I guess she's done with the career. She's like, all right, let's stick it all in the book. Well, she's also told on herself about something that she did back in 2016. She conducted an interview with then Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And at the time, there was a big controversy over the kneeling during the national anthem. We all remember that for NFL players and NFL games and Colin Kaepernick and the like. And this came up in the interview. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg expressed her displeasure with people who decided that they were going to kneel during the anthem. And some of those quotes you might remember circulated and people talked about them at the time. She called it dumb and disrespectful for people to do that. And she got, RBG did, some backlash for that. Although many millions of Americans also agree, right, left and center, found it to be disrespectful to kneel during the anthem. Following the lead of Colin Kaepernick, who has since fully exposed himself as an anti-American grifter on identity politics and a very successful one at that. But what Katie Couric says is that Ginsburg actually said a lot more than that on this subject. But Katie Couric decided that she wanted to not share that information with the American people. So she cut it out of the interview. Among other things, Ginsburg told Couric at the time that those who knelt during the anthem showed, quote, contempt for a government that has made it possible for their parents and grandparents to live a decent life. Couric, according to FoxNews.com in the book, says she was conflicted about including the justice's comment, that particular comment, because she was, quote, a big RBG fan. 
She wrote that she wanted to, quote, protect Ginsburg at the time so it didn't make it into her story. She made a conscious decision to leave out an extremely interesting, controversial statement from a sitting Supreme Court justice. Why? Because she was a fan of that justice. Of course she was. Now, she's not an opinion person, Katie Couric. She is someone who appeared on your television for years as just a straight-up journalist, telling you the truth as it exists, and all these wackos talking about bias are out of their minds. I'm just a journalist here at NBC and CBS, etc. But she loved RBG. I mean, no one is shocked by any of that, but it's just it's worth driving home that point. But she loved her so much. She was such a big fan of this very liberal Supreme Court justice, that she thought, okay, in today's milieu and the rise of wokeism and these culture wars, she might get a backlash, a big backlash from the left if it seems like she might be agreeing with, gasp, Donald Trump or conservatives on this question of anthem kneeling. And therefore, she just snipped that quote right out, did not make it to the story left on the cutting room floor specifically to protect Ginsburg, she says, this is her admission in her own book. She wanted to protect. She wanted to protect the woman of whom she's a big fan from some maybe criticism on the left. Needless to say, this is not journalism. This is the opposite of journalism. Right. What do they always say? You want to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted or whatever, truth to power. This is sort of the exact opposite of all of those slogans. This is a journalist fangirling over an ideological ally who's sort of this icon and realizes, ooh, in the woke scheme of things, people might not like that comment. Let's just make it go away. And so she did. That is an incredible admission. I would also note Stephen Gudkowski has written about this as well. Katie Couric was accused, and I think it's pretty well proven, that she did some deceptive editing of her own on a segment that she did on guns as well. So this is not the first ethical lapse here on this front when it comes to manipulating what people said or didn't say for ideological ends. The last point I will make is this. You have to wonder... We would have never known about this if not for Katie Couric putting in her own book at the end of her career. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. How many other examples of this phenomenon are there that we never knew about? What else have they chosen to hide from us? It is a fair question. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Guy Benson. 
We're back here on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting today from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Around the clock for the podcast, which is free of charge. We are joined now by Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel White House correspondent. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Guy. Hey, neighbor. So, hello, neighbor. I want to start with this. I was just talking about it in the previous segment. Just want to get your take on it as an active and working journalist. It's been a few years since I graduated from journalism school back in 2007. So I just want to make sure things hadn't changed or if I hadn't really, uh, you know, missed some major uh, shift in journalistic ethics. But when Katie Couric admits in a book that she's written that when she interviewed Ruth Bader Ginsburg while she was sitting on the high court and Ginsburg told her something that Couric knew would be controversial and Couric writes that she was a big fan of the Supreme Court justice and wanted to protect her and therefore kept it out of the story. To me, I think that feels wrong journalistically. Am I off base here, Peter? No, and it's one of those things where sometimes, uh, especially on my side of it, where there is limited time every appearance that I have, so a soundbite might have to be trimmed down. You can do that as long as you don't change the point or you don't change the person's meaning. What right. it sounds like Katie Clark was doing was changing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's meaning. And can you imagine, uh, it's not that hard to imagine what the blowback would be if you or I interviewed like Donald Trump last year and he said something explosive that you knew it's going to make news, but it would make him look bad. And you just said, you know what, I, we're not going to include it. That is a huge failing. Although, like, what's the point of doing an interview? At that point, you're, you're basically just uh, like PR? a publicist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's fan service. It's fan service is what it is. And she recognized, okay, the fans of me and the fans of Ruth Bader Ginsburg won't like this thing that she has to say about this particular issue. And so let's just withhold it from the fans. And I'm also a fan of hers. And therefore, we need to keep it out to protect her. And that's the thing about this, Peter. We don't have to dwell on this much longer. But sometimes it is up to people to connect the dots themselves to say, okay, here's what happened. Let's say it was somehow revealed in some other way that Katie Couric had decided not to include this line. You could have maybe her defenders or others coming out and saying, well, it's def- a defensible omission for this reason or that reason or what have you. And it would be sort of up to other people to say, well, gosh, could she have done it to protect Ginsburg? And it would have been kind of speculation. And often you don't have those dots connected so explicitly by the person themselves. I think that's what's so useful about this. There's no ambiguity here. She is copying to it. She wrote it in her own book. She did it because she's a fan of the Supreme Court justice at the time and wanted to protect her from blowback or controversy. She's admitting straight up. She is conceding the point. You don't have to speculate at all. There's no conjecture here. She's admitting what she did, and that's why I think it's instructive. Uh, Yes, and uh, the final point that I would make about this, how often do you ever hear from a Supreme Court justice, let alone Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in the last 10 years of her life and of her term? And so every single thing that they say matters. It matters because people want to trust that the high court is this pristine, non-political body. And so if somebody weighs in on something like kneeling for the anthem, which the president at the time made the big issue, uh, or candidate for president, 
that's a big problem. Yep. And by the way, I said I was going to move on, but one more point, because that sparked another point. It's not like, in this case, Katie Couric was covering this up because Ginsburg was up for re-election, right? That's not how it works on the Supreme Court. We know that this, that the media and big tech and others, the Democratic Party, all colluded to kill the Hunter Biden story ahead of the election. And they did that for political reasons. And now some people are starting to finally cover it because, I guess, you know, it's allowed now. It it can now be told. Like, you know, the lab leak theory, it can now be told that's legitimate because Trump's gone. We've seen this repeatedly with some things timed or suppressed along a political time frame or time continuum. And you can sort of figure out exactly what the motive was and why they were trying to protect someone at a given time. In this case— a Supreme Court justice is not in need of any protection. It's a, it's a lifetime appointment. You are there for as long as you want to be there or until you pass away, which was the case of RBG. This was simply like legacy protection from Katie Couric. Neither one would have been acceptable. I just think it's interesting how reflexive this instinct seemed to be to protect someone that you like ideologically and therefore, which is not journalism, and therefore cutting out something that could be controversial from an interview, if you are willing to do that in order to shield someone from critique who doesn't need a shield because they literally have the job for life, you have to wonder what are they willing to do when there are high stakes, when someone might need, quote unquote, protection, where it could help them in a high stakes election. The question that I finished the last segment was, and and I'll give you the last word on this topic in a second, Peter, I think it is not unreasonable for Americans to see this and sort of this almost breezy admission from Katie Couric in her, you know, career ending memoir and wonder to themselves, how often do journalists, this was an NBC, CBS, Yahoo, I mean, she, she worked a lot of places. How often does this type of thing happen that we never know about? What do they keep from us? And then they're willing to, you know, add it as a salacious detail in a book, you know, after their career's over. I don't think that's a crazy question to ask for people because, I mean, the ethics here are obviously terrible, but she was happy to put it in her book. It's not a crazy question to ask. And I would just say you got to wonder if the lesson to journalists coming up like uh, and, you know, people in media, your age, my age, uh, is the lesson not to do that, not to cover for somebody like corrected for Ginsburg or just not to tell anybody when you do it. Right. Just hold back, hold off. And I actually mentioned this episode in the last segment as well, Couric was also just nailed dead to rights for manipulating footage in another interview that she once did on guns. She wanted to make the pro-gun people look dumb and and stupid and sort of dumbfounded by a question that she asked. And there was another recording of the actual interaction, which proved that the way that they edited things was totally deceptive, made it look like they had never thought of the answer to this brilliant question from Katie Couric. It's not what happened at all. And This is what we have gotten, just a few little snapshots into the ethics of this one journalist who was about as big name and and famous as you can possibly get. And the mind starts to wonder about which other people who are generally on one team ideologically in these important, powerful journalistic positions have done other things like this through the years. And 
you have journalists and you know journalism professors and others who look around and they all stroke their chins and they have their you know group you know meetings at in the Aspen Ideas Festival and they can't figure out why trust in institutions like journalism have cratered so much and why uh, you know approval and trust in the media is so low and I mean it's just like exhibit A B and C every single day. Meanwhile, Peter Ducey, let's get to your role and your job right now. The president of the United States, I saw the RNC, their research team just tweeted a a moment ago that the president answered one question this week. He has done one sit-down interview in the last nearly three months. He hasn't taken a question on Afghanistan in well over a month. He has now had back-to-back days where he has come out and read a very short prepared statement, uh, one on COVID, one on the you know, shortage of of workers and economic issues and the shortage of of uh, goods and supplies and the backlog there. And then he, you know, turns on his heel, walks out of the room. People shout some questions at him. He doesn't take the bait, and he just doesn't take questions. Is there a sense of frustration among your colleagues, not just you, but people who are like the access to this president to get questions, let alone sustained questions? is not at an acceptable level, or are people just sort of like, yeah, it is what it is? I think that there is a lot of it is what it is because the White House press corps, a lot of them have been there since pre-Trump, and Barack Obama did not do a ton of uh, just straight question and answer things. Uh, The sense that I get from Joe Biden, though, is as somebody who has spent pretty much the last three years almost every day of my life with him, he is very aware of what his approval ratings are and what the polls are saying on different issues. When the polls are good, like when he had good marks on the economy and on COVID vaccinations, uh, he wanted to talk all the time. But right now the polls are bad and he doesn't want to talk about it. Afghanistan happens. Polls are bad. The supply chain uh, and inflation are creating headaches across the country. Polls are bad. Doesn't want to talk about it. And so I think we will hear more from him when things stabilize a little bit more. Uh, But, you know, he's also being confronted right now with the reality that it doesn't seem like the the headline Democratic candidate right now, Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, wants Biden around. It's possible somebody just said, please, no Democratic Party uh, flip ups until after the election. Uh, so maybe we can hear from him for first week in November. I don't know. Uh, that would be possible. I wouldn't be necessarily shocked if that hypothesis were true. One subject that has been asked about a bit, and it's gotten some sort of snippy responses from Jen Psaki, is Hunter Biden and the ethics surrounding his various business dealings. Uh, this week was the one-year anniversary of the New York Post reporting on the emails and the laptop Uh, That was, as I alluded to earlier and mentioned, uh, that was almost universally shot down, suppressed, censored by big tech, by the rest of the media. The Democratic Party was sort of, you know, calling the shots there. They all just decided it was Russian disinformation and they uh, held hands together and said, we'll just sing from this playbook. It's Russian disinformation. We're not going to report on it. Of course, that turned out not to be true. There was no evidence it was Russian dis- disinformation. It has been, in fact, authenticated, a lot of that material. And there's now the, the art question as well about this new money-making venture of the first son, who is this brand-new burgeoning artist, uh, you know, amateur artist, and he's selling for – 
tens of thousands, if not more, these works of art and the White House has been pressed on this. And uh, when they are pressed on it, including by The New York Post, Jen Psaki sort of sneers a little bit, being like, oh, I know you love this story. Uh, That's not really an answer. She often says that we will all be just referred to the gallerist. This is what she says all the time. I'd refer you to the gallerist. Yeah, referring everyone to the gallerist. What do you make of this story, Peter? And is it an acceptable answer on the substance to just punt, if you're the White House on ethics, to some gallerist who I guess is now the arbiter of what is or is not ethically problematic with – a family member of the president of the United States. Well, whether it's an acceptable answer or not, I don't know, but it's just not an answer. Uh, and a week or two ago, I asked Shinsaki about this, and she basically said, uh, you know, they, they lump it all in as a big, you know, any bad headline is Russian disinformation. It's a line they were using a year ago when the story came out in the run-up to the election. It is a line that they have repeated because nothing has changed. So we know that certain aspects of Hunter Biden's personal life and his professional life are under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware, by by the DOJ. And until they make any kind of a move, whether it's a subpoena, whether they need to depose somebody in the Biden family, uh, if that ever happens, uh, I'm sure that the White House will put their heads together and they'll give a statement about the new facts, like as the, you know, a law enforcement authority is requiring them. But I I don't think we're going to get anything more than, uh, well, we know that there was a lot of Russian disinformation. So this, you know, this falls into that. Yeah, I guess the DOJ investigation is also uh, Russian disinformation or, or something. It's kind of incoherent. Last point on this, Peter, you asked candidate Biden a question all the way back in 2019 about his knowledge or discussions with his son uh, in the realm of foreign business dealings. And he gave you a categorical answer. He never spoke to his son about any of these dealings. He repeated that assertion later as well. There's now been over the course of the last year a fair amount of evidence that has emerged that would suggest that cannot be true, the categorical denial from Biden about his knowledge, not his son or a drug habit. This is foreign business entanglements. Has there been any appetite that you have detected among anyone beyond yourself and maybe the New York Post to maybe follow up on that, given that he made a blanket statement as a presidential candidate that seems to continue unraveling even as he's president today? Not with regard to the the big picture, Hunter Biden was involved with bad behavior, profiting off his dad's name, did his bad know, and, you know, go from there. I, the only time that I've heard anybody not Fox or the New York Post, or maybe, I, I think I heard a Daily Mail question once uh, about Hunter, was from CBS and ABC within the last week or two about the art. Oh, I, I feel like Peter's uh, phone is breaking up very badly. I wonder if it's the Russians. I don't know what other conclusion we could possibly reach, according to Circleback. You know what? It's either the Russians or the gallerist. You pick. Maybe both. Thank you, Peter Ducey. We got to cut you loose because, I don't know, the the phone was just uh, going haywire. And we're up on a break anyway, so it all kind of works out. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, Andy McCarthy still to come. Kennedy will be here, Will Kane, and much more. I do want to very briefly address a statement that was put out in an email blast from the former president, Donald Trump, last evening. And I just cannot disagree anymore with what he said. He wrote, quote, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, which we have thoroughly and conclusively documented, Republicans will not be voting in 22 and 24. Now, it is not true that electoral fraud was thoroughly or conclusively proven. In fact, they had an opportunity to prove it over and over again in court and failed to do so every time. That needs to be said as much as some people may not want to hear it. We should not be relitigating 2020. I think that there are some changes to the system that are reasonable after the pandemic and some of the changes that had been made on the fly. I'm in favor of that. Pretending that there was widespread fraud that changed the outcome, there is no proof of that. Setting that aside, the idea that Republicans should boycott elections next year or 2024 unless what Trump, whatever he desires, is done on voter fraud, that is – I can't think of a better gift to the Democratic Party. You look at the way Joe Biden is failing as president, what the Democrats in Congress want to do and could do with just a few more seats. The idea that Republicans should look at all that and say, well, we're just going to take our ball and sit this out and not vote. That is like an in-kind contribution to the Democratic National Committee. Absolutely not. Conservatives must vote and they must vote enthusiastically and in droves. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Broadcasting from WISN, 11.30 a.m. in Milwaukee, it's the Guy Benson Show. On this Thursday, our middle hour is now underway. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, and it's around the clock. Available to you at your fingertips, at no charge, if you miss any of it live on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow had a good day, up 534 points at the close ending at 34,912. We're very happy to welcome back to the show Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple books, including Ball of Collusion, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you back here. Guy, great to be with you. Andy, do you have any rooting interest over the course of the remainder of the MLB playoffs? Um, you know, I, I found guy that I'm, I'm pulling for individual players and I did get sucked into, um, 
the Red Sox and the Rays. I ended up watching some of that game. I turned it on, I think, in the third inning or fifth inning in, on Sunday and stayed with it till the end. And it was a, a thrilling game, although I hated the rule um, intervention toward the end, which I think was really bad for Tampa. But it's, I, I find it hard because I, I'm not really crazy about the teams. And the other thing I must say, and, and I say this almost with apology as a traditional baseball guy, but you can't have four- and five-hour games and expect people to hang in there yeah. uh, and expect and to yet, keep a fan base. And yet, Andy, like I agree with that. Some of these things just go on forever. And the other side of it is then you hear these reports and leaks that you know Manfred's out there, the commissioner trying to figure out all these ways to change the game to make it more interesting for people and maybe, you know, shorten it. They've already put some measures in to shorten the games. And I feel like so many of these ideas that they test drive or they're talking about are terrible. So I don't really know what the solution is. Well, the solution is to have, you have to have a a clock to move the pitching along, but the dirty little secret they don't want to talk about is the commercial breaks between innings are too long. I mean, you know, if you think about if they're adding, you know, a minute or two to those after 18 half innings, that adds up after a while. You know, that's a fair point. I think there's a lot of things they could do to speed it up. All right, Andy, let's talk politics. And this is sort of right in your wheelhouse story we've been covering now for days. The intervention of the Department of Justice under the Attorney General Merrick Garland, getting the FBI involved, this intervention at the behest, at least supposedly, at the behest of this school board association saying, oh, we're under threat, we're under all this uh, you know, t- terrible behavior, and we need the feds to get involved because this could be domestic terrorism. Please look at the Patriot Act provisions. And the Justice Department turned around and said, aye, aye, Captain, let's get right on this, and did precisely that. Uh, we had Christopher Rufo on this show earlier in the week. He said that there's evidence he has seen that this was basically the Justice Department asking for a pretext from this group to say, hey, you guys need to make a complaint and we want to do this. So, you know, give us a complaint letter and we'll get on it. Whether that is true or not, the intervention itself strikes me as extremely heavy handed and abusive. Andy, am I missing something here where if there are rare examples of threats or terrible behavior or violence or what have you, that could be, you know, dealt with or referred to local law enforcement and just left there. And I don't really see much evidence that this is any sort of widespread problem. And yet the Biden Justice Department got all over this. It just it reeks of an abuse of power and an attempt to intimidate and silence people in a way that would potentially benefit the political allies of the Democratic Party and perhaps the Democratic Party itself. Am I being too cynical in that framing of the issue? No, Guy, you're right. And I think Chris is right, frankly, because this is a it's a tactic we saw throughout the Obama administration where they would um, have activists make a request for action that they were spoiling to take. Uh, I, I think probably the most notorious example uh, involved the um, training materials for our law enforcement and intelligence people, uh, w- specifically with respect to jihadism, 
um, which, you know, they, they got these activists to complain about that. And then as soon as they complained, they started to purge the materials and purge the instructors, et cetera. So this is a, this is a tactic they've used before, and it's more outrageous here than I've seen before because there is absolutely no federal jurisdiction for what we're talking about. And because of the First Amendment, it's exactly the kind of thing the federal government is supposed to protect people from having had from from uh, being intimidated into silence rather than what they're doing, which is doing the intimidating. Um, I used the federal incitement statutes in terrorism prosecutions in the 90s. So uh, and by the way, so did Merrick Garland. Um, So I, I can tell you that. There is only a sliver when we're talking about political dissent and policy dissent, and and that would include parents complaining about school policies. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only a small sliver of that that the First Amendment tolerates the criminalization of. And it has to be not not only threats of violence, the threats have to be clear. There has to be intent that's obvious. In other words, we don't want to have the guy screaming, kill the umpire lopped in with uh, the people who were actually serious about doing violence. The Supreme Court says it has to be probable and imminent, that is, the threat of violence. And then federal law, statutory law, puts another condition on it before it becomes federal. And that is that if the violence happens, it would have to be a violation of the laws of the United States. So I was able to use the incitement statute against terrorists who were, for example, threatening to bomb American military installations or kill federal government officials. Um, but it, it, as far as threats on the local level are concerned... Yeah, hang on, Andy. Let me, I just want to stop there for one second, because <laughs> what you just described, how you were able to use these rules during your time as a federal prosecutor, specifically actual terrorists making actual violent threats to kill or maim or harm federal government officials or, you know, attack military bases, that is so completely far removed, like totally different zip codes from some overheated parents shouting at school board members. Guy, that's not only true, but... The Clinton Justice Department, of which Merrick Garland was a high-ranking and I thought very good uh, official, by the way, um, they gave me a very hard time about – I mean, they really put me through my paces before I was allowed to bring that indictment because what they said at the time was that they were very concerned about the potential for chilling um, anti-American political dissent and uh, fevered – but religious rhetoric. Um, and I had to convince them that I had a solid case before they would let me bring it. And I, it, I had a harder trial, I think, in many ways in the Justice Department to convince them to let me bring the charges than I did in front of the, uh, the 12 jurors in New York. In the All right, so, so what changed so, with Merrick Garland? If, uh, if he was really making you truly dot every I, cross every T, explain yourself, justify the use of these statutes with deep concern about, you know, First Amendment rights and the chilling of speech or expression. If that was his position back when you were prosecuting cases, when you were trying to prosecute violent threats from jihadists against federal officials, 
how could that same person say, oh, yes, let's get the FBI involved into this with with parents getting upset with school board members sort of at an ad hoc basis in this organic way around the country where there are very, very few actual documented cases of anything like shoving or fisticuffs. I just I don't understand how that same exact person can come down with this decision under these circumstances without simply concluding this is completely about politics and the point is to chill speech in this case yeah very simply guy the difference is the nature of the dissent so what we were talking about back in the 90s uh, and the people who were very suspicious of our prosecutions were islamist organizations uh, and democratic allied outfits like the aclu who were concerned about uh, being able to uh, ha- have their interpretation of religion without having to worry about um, uh, government monitoring, and who are also worried about uh, robust anti-American dissent, which they're always concerned about. Uh, now, the people who are protesting are parents who don't want to have the schools turned into indoctrination laboratories for progressive pieties. Um, So the Justice Department is taking a different tack with them, but it shouldn't because it should not matter what the political motivation for forcible threats, if there are threats, uh, is. What should matter is, uh, are we talking about conduct that violates the federal law or not? Here I should point out that um, with respect to threats, let's go beyond threats. If I were to, at my local school board to say, Um, If you make my kid wear that mask or you teach that critical race theory, um, I'm going to come down. I'm I'm not I not only say I'm going to come down there and punch my school administrator in the nose. I actually follow through and do that. Um, I've done a reprehensible thing. I should be prosecuted by the local police and the local prosecutor. But the thing is, I haven't committed a federal crime. The federal incitement statute says that the threatened use of force or even the use of force has to be a violation of the laws of the United States, and that's just not. So where does this go? Well, what can be done here? It seems like obvious, egregious, politically motivated overreach to basically tell parents, you shut the hell up. We're going to do what we want. We're in bed with the teachers unions and these school boards and these ideological projects, and we're going to bring the power of the federal government down on you just to keep you in line so you don't shout a little too loudly what can be done to push back on this legally and more broadly speaking, Andy, I almost wonder if this heavy handedness and this abuse is backfiring already with people being so offended by what the DOJ is trying to do here. And a lot of Americans have diminished trust in the DOJ to begin with. If they're actually drawing more attention to this controversy and, you know, taking people off in a significant and and more dramatic way. Yeah, I think that point guy is the most important one because the the recompense here is really ultimately going to be at the ballot box if people are angry enough about what's going on. The the main pushback against it has to come from Congress which has to conduct meaningful oversight uh of the Justice Department. And I think some of that is being done. I thought some of the hearing uh, last week, Congress often does a poor job. I thought they did a pretty good job in the hearing 
that Lisa Monica, the deputy attorney general, testified at. I think the other possibility is civil rights lawsuits against the government for violation of people's constitutional and federal rights. But it's, you know, litigation is tough. It's hard to do. It's hard to put on parents the burden of bringing lawsuits against the, you know, against the Justice Department with Mm. its $30 billion budget. And it also seems unlikely that very intense, meaningful scrutiny and oversight will come from a Congress that is controlled by the party that benefits from the type of bullying that the DOJ is attempting in this case and ideologically aligned with that kind of bullying. It would strike me as of paramount importance to get at least one of those houses of Congress under control of the other party that might actually hold an administration accountable uh, as opposed to the party that is currently in power, which is why, to underscore a point I made last hour, the notion that Republicans or conservatives or right-leaning people or even centrists who are sick of this stuff should sit at home and not vote in 2022 or 2024 uh, is just the, the height of folly, no matter who recommends that course of action. Andy, last word to you about where you think this might go and if, in fact, the criticism might become so intense and acute that they back off a little bit because uh, they kind of got got caught over their skis here a bit. Yeah, I think that's happening already, Guy, because in Monaco's testimony, what you saw was a lot of backpedaling and a lot of uh, admission that the Constitution doesn't abide the kind of uh, thing that the memo uh, is strongly suggesting that the, the Justice Department is doing. So I think they're already backpedaling. And the fact of the matter is they can threaten and they can even send the FBI out to uh, intimidate people, which is a reprehensible thing to do. But there's not going to be any federal prosecutions or federal civil actions here because they simply don't have jurisdiction. And the big tell of that is the memo says that the federal government wants to partner with the state and local government. Mm. The dirty little secret about that is because they don't have their own jurisdiction. They have to piggyback on the locals to get it. Yeah, I think an abuse, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be a federal indictment. It would just be the FBI knocking on a door over any of this stuff. That would be the abuse right there. And you better believe a lot of people are going to be vigilant for this now moving forward. Andy McCarthy, longtime federal prosecutor. He's a Fox News contributor. Andy, appreciate your time today and always. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Guy. It is The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks to WISN here in Milwaukee for hosting me today on the program. We've got Kennedy coming up in the next half hour, Will Kane in the next hour. I saw this tweet yesterday, and I cannot believe that it's real, but it is. Jason Furman, who was in the Obama administration, he's a lefty economist. He's a professor as well at Harvard. He's a progressive. He's a lib. And he tweeted, most of the economic problems we're facing, inflation, supply chains, etc., are High-class problems. I want you to think about that. Ron Klain, who is the chief of staff at the White House, he is running the show 
at the Biden White House retweeted that tweet and said this with fingers pointing down like, everyone pay attention. This is correct. Most of the economic problems we're facing, like inflation and supply chains, are high class problems. I would like for you just for a moment to think, are you a high class Person, not, you know, in terms of classiness, we're all very classy here on the Guy Benson show. But in terms of your income, are you the rich? Are you elite? On what planet is inflation where the cost of everything goes up? On what planet is that a high class problem? That is a working and middle class problem when the when your dollar doesn't go as far, where your dollars aren't as powerful don't have as much you know, buying power anymore, that disproportionately hurts people the farther you go down the spectrum on income. Supply chains, that affects everyone. What the hell are they talking about? That's the White House Chief of Staff revealing, is it not? From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com. It is The Guy Benson Show from Milwaukee, Wisconsin today. Thank you for listening. This story comes to us from just a few miles south of here in the city of Chicago, And it surely, clearly falls within the category of woke tales. Woke tales. So there is a museum in Chicago, very well known, very well respected, the Art Institute of Chicago. I went there a few times when I was living in the city. A very good friend of mine got married at the Art Institute. It is world renowned. And it has, or at least used to have, 122 docents. So there are 82 active docents. So these are the people who sort of help people get through the museum and know a lot of facts about art and are sort of almost tour guides, an art docent at a museum like this. 82 active docents and 40 who greet and work with school groups. All of these docents were volunteers and unpaid. They did this because they're passionate about it. They donated their time to do it. And there's a website that has chronicled what happened here. It's now been picked up in the media. The Chicago Tribune has covered it. The editorial board of the Chicago Tribune just blasting the Art Institute over what happened. So you've got these docents. Their job is to basically be the guides for all of the works of art, hundreds of thousands of works of art that are housed at the Art Institute of Chicago. Despite the fact that they are not paid, they do this because they love it. The training process to become a docent at the Art Institute of Chicago is extremely rigorous. And this is from a website that I'm reading called whyevolutionistrue.com. I'm unfamiliar with it, but this story has now been reported out, as I mentioned, in the mainstream press as well. This is just some extra color and context and details. In order to become a docent at the Art Institute, they were all required, all of these people did this, more than 100 of them, 
to do two training sessions every week for 18 months. So a year and a half of twice weekly trainings. It's like the entire pandemic that we've lived through doing something twice a week, every week. That was part of the training that they had to do. Then on top of that, quote, five years of continual research and writing to meet the criteria of 13 museum content areas. So this is a multi-year process for people to become qualified to volunteer their time at the Chicago Art Institute as docents. There are tours. It's a lot of work. The average length of service for people who do this is 15 years, and they are overwhelmingly retirees and heavily female. This write-up says that many of the volunteers, though not all, are older white women. They have the time and the resources to devote that much free labor to the museum. But... As it turns out, apparently there was a decision made for equity, of course, there's that word, that the demographics here did not look like Chicago or were not representative. There was a problem here. So the Art Institute in late September fired all of their docents, gone. They're going to instead replace them by paying fewer people. To be hired workers, 25 bucks an hour to then do this job. And they will, I'm sure, be hiring based on diversity and inclusion criteria, among other things. Think about how much work these people, especially these women, all put in. Years and years of work. To do something that they love out of the goodness of their heart, their passion for art and the arts. They do it because they love it. And it was determined that they are sort of problematic because they are too white overall. So they're out. They've been fired. And instead, they'll be replaced by paid workers hired on demographic-related bases who are much less prepared who've done much less training by necessity just to ramp this thing up as soon as they can, I cannot imagine that would feel very good. This is how insane the woke equity race stuff gets. They literally fired their entire group of docents trained over years, many of whom had been there well over a decade because they were deemed as a group to be too white. And there was a pretty stinging editorial that I referenced in the Chicago Tribune headline, shame on the Art Institute for summarily canning its volunteer docents. So they're getting shamed to some extent. There have been letters to the editor. There have been I guess some Chicago radio stations that have covered this. People aren't happy. But I wonder if the Art Institute is just thinking, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Some people will be upset. There'll be a bit of a backlash. We'll wait that out because ultimately we are more afraid of the woke people coming for us. I would love to know. Truly, I would love to know how this came about. Was there a complaint filed? Who was responsible for this? 
who decided this was a problem. And once, let's say there was a squeaky wheel or someone said, hey, I've got a problem with this. What was the decision-making process of the people in charge, again, who just cave? We don't even know if they were caving to anyone specifically, like a preemptive surrender here. How was the decision made? Oh, yes, the best solution to all of this is let's get all of these people who are passionate volunteers, who know what they're talking about, who have put in all of this work, who do this because it means something to them. Let's fire all of them. All in one fell swoop in the name of equity. What insanity. And yet this was like if someone raised their hand and suggested that, you would think they'd get laughed out of the room. What is wrong with you? We're not doing that. Instead, that was the decision that was made. This is why we do woke tales as often as we do. The lunacy far too often is winning. That's why I did a whole opening monologue earlier in the week applauding Netflix for not caving on the whole mob thing about the Chappelle comedy. In fact, we will ask our next guest about that whole kerfuffle. The woke activists are escalating, of course, as they always do. Netflix standing tall so far. We will get to that story on the other side of this break with Kennedy. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Guy Benson. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Back, it's the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from Milwaukee. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast every day. We are now joined by Kennedy, our dear friend and colleague. She is host of Kennedy on Fox Business Network, Monday through Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, that's FBN on social media at Kennedy Nation. Hello, Kennedy. Hello, Guy Benson. Is that your real name? (laughs) It is indeed my real name. I want to ask you about this story. I did a mono two days ago to open the show about Netflix and Dave Chappelle and the fact that Netflix seems to be really digging in for this battle and refusing to budge against the wokesters. And they have made clear they are not going to take down his special. That has offended some people. We watched it. We thought it was funny, provocative. He said some stuff I would never say, obviously, but that's sometimes the point of comedy. The usual suspects are all angry about it, up in arms. And Netflix said no. Duly noted, but no. There were some people who crashed a leadership meeting. They were disciplined, which I think is the right thing to do. And now we've got this. A group of transgender employees at Netflix are organizing a walkout of the staff to protest the company's decision here on the Chappelle special. I think a lot of these people are still working from home, so I'm not sure what this entails. Like you walk out your front door, so brave. But what is your take on this whole thing, and do you think Netflix – withstands the criticism, withstands the storm. Yeah, because I think Netflix is doing this for everybody else um, because they want to keep comedy alive. It's very lucrative for them, and it's very important for society and for free speech. And, you know, comedy has always been offensive. And that's the point. You know, you think about the things that you laughed at when you were a little kid, and it was like, Bodily fluids, fornication, <laughs> uh, body parts, and religion. Like, there are only a few things uh, that, that still push people's buttons. 
and not everything has to be deadly serious. And there, you know, not every forum is the same thing as congressional testimony. And, you know, Dave Chappelle has enough experience and he has enough money that he can throw both birds in the air and say, this is how I really feel. This is what I'm really going to make fun of. And he knows people are going to get mad. And it's only better for him because people are going to keep watching what he does and enjoying the product that he provides. So in terms of free speech, I side with Netflix. Yep. Um, I also, I don't necessarily hold Dave Chappelle's views on everything. I think, you know, there there are a lot of people who want to make it into an either or argument. And I think it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. And um, I think there are those old school feminists who uh, have made some really valid points. Like for a long time, guys got everything and women had to fight really, really hard uh, for basic, not even total equality. And, you know, finally we're getting somewhere and then we're told, you know, it's like we can't even celebrate what it means to be a woman. So I totally understand their point of view while at the same time being respectful and protective of my trans friends, you know, who are still targeted, who are still made fun of, who are still in many ways marginalized. But thank God the ones that I know still have a sense of humor. Right. And I think that's what it comes down to also here, because the people who get so angry, it's not just we are offended by whatever it is, what someone said, what someone tweeted, a joke that was made. I think it's especially tiresome when the target is comedy like that ought to be just kind of off limits and out of bounds. People can just push those bounds, push those buttons. It's the entire point. But they don't just say, I'm offended. This is problematic. Why are we giving this a platform? They have to go like several steps further about this is deeply harmful. These words are violence unto these communities. And it just gets so overwrought and so spun up and blown out of proportion. And they sort of conflate. They don't sort of. They do conflate words with violence. And I think that that is an extremely dangerous thing, and I think it should be fought and pushed back on and combated at every turn. And I'm glad Netflix, at least for now, is doing that. Uh, Yeah, they have to. Someone has to, because there's been so much political and societal capitulation. Yes. And most people are like, no, I'm I'm on your side. Like, I want to be a good person. Like, I feel for you. I just... I don't have the energy for this irrational um, dogma to rule every facet of my life. And, you know, it's like I don't feel like participating in the virtue signaling uh, that you require in order for me to let the world know that I have correct thinking and behavior. Meanwhile, Kennedy, I have to play this clip. It's cut 22 from yesterday on the virtual couch on Outnumbered. Things got a wee bit heated on the set, or at least on the virtual set. Here's part of what went down. Listen. And the Democratic cities and states are not doing it, at least not yet. Uh, I'm not holding my breath. And New York is a hellhole. Uh, it, it, it is, thanks to Mayor no, de Blasio. Not. It's not looking so hot no, when it comes yeah. to crime. No, it's not. You don't get to call New yeah. York that. Well, not yes, but we can call it. I live it, here, sister. But yeah, I live here. I, I so walk the streets, not like that. But I do walk around. I read the news.
New York Post. I talked to cops. I know what's going on here. That's but not you. an accurate journalist outlet. No, 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 no. I, I'll tell you, as a journalist, I yeah, talked to all the is. cops, and I know a lot of people in the NYPD. In fact, one of the lead detectives in New York City texted me during the show. Um, so let me just tell you that the police here cannot do their jobs because they are not backed up by the Democratic leaders. And that's Please why our crime rates have gone up. That's there is accurate. no question. No, it's yeah, not go, a hell Go I talk to your New local York City. Ooh, okay. Uh, care to elaborate on this? Because obviously you live in New York. There is a defense of New York. And it seemed like she was objecting to the word or the characterization hellhole, but also simultaneously downplaying what is an undeniably a very serious problem with crime. In a very different city uh, than I moved to for the second time in 2015. And as you remember, I was going back and forth every week between L.A. and New York. So I got to see both sides of the country every single week and got to see the contrast and got to see it change. And New York is a lot scarier place now than it was in 2015. You know, I didn't, my my daughters have seen, like witnessed so much assault of their friends and other people. And, you know, it's like when I have to send my daughters out with pepper spray, not because I'm being overly cautious, but because that's pretty much what all moms are doing, you know, there's obviously been a big shift. And when there is lawlessness and people are pooping on the streets and people are just shooting up in public because drugs are still illegal and the the homicide rate is off the charts and, and kids in the city are being shot and killed. Yeah, it's a friggin' hellhole. And I will, I will describe something in the manner I choose, especially when I live there and experience it every single day. Well, let's end on a happier note than that and talk about a place that was not a hellhole. Not too long ago, you went on a beautiful vacation to, what was it, Tuscany or the Amalfi Coast of Italy. You had a splendid-looking time, and I saw some of your photos, and I was just uh, crying. Tears of joy because you were loving your life and living your best life. Tears of anguish because I was not invited on this trip. I'm about to go to Greece tomorrow with Adam and a few friends. Do you have any COVID-era travel tips, Kennedy, before I leave this great nation for a few days? Yeah, I mean, always always take uh, face masks and put on your wrist. So it's like you let people know, hey, if I need this, I'll put it on right away. Uh, People, especially in vacation spots where you spend a lot of time outside, uh, they're pretty mellow. They're very happy to have people enjoying their towns and spending money. They're very proud of, uh, you know, what they're able to offer. And people are, by and large, in a very, very good mood. Um, My niece got it right. She had a cross-country flight last week and she took a bunch of uh starbucks cards and gave them out to all the flight attendants and they got free booze throughout the entire flight so oh now that is a flight attendants yes they have been they have been under siege there's you know don't make a mask stand on the plane that's not the time and place for it not that you ever would that this is Um, actually a very interesting idea here to try to make the friendly skies even friendlier when it comes to a little uh little booze on the flight thank you for that tip Kennedy's niece. And thank you, Kennedy, for coming on the program. As always, we love having you here. We miss you in person. We will see you soon, we hope, in New York City. Have a great show tonight. Have a great weekend. I love you, guys, Benson. <laughs> Kennedy, host of Kennedy, Fox Business Network, Monday through Thursday, 
FBN at Kennedy Nation on Twitter and Instagram. Final hour coming up. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the happy hour on this Thursday from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Very happy to be here. Even happier still to have you all here with me. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday around the clock, if you can't listen between those hours, on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. All the stuff you need for this show, every resource right there. Podcast is free on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I was just chatting with someone about the long drink. A listener asked me about the long drink last night here in Wisconsin, and I've heard some rumors that it is coming soon to Wisconsin. You can learn more about where the long drink is sold near you at thelongdrink.com. It's really good. I don't just say it because they're a sponsor. I was a customer before they were a sponsor. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. As we begin this final hour of the program today, let's welcome back to the program Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend every Saturday and Sunday from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern and host of the Will Kane podcast available along with this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Will, welcome back to the show, sir. What's up, guy? I'm glad to be here. I've got a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about. Two of these stories are right in your wheelhouse because they require nuance. There are not easy soundbite answers for either of them, and they deal with culture and politics and also sports. So I feel like we have the right guest here. And if you can't do it, no one can. Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, the vaccination controversy, what the Nets are doing with him, the pushback from a lot of his fans who are not necessarily, you know, straight out of central casting Trump supporters. What do you make of this entire imbroglio? Yeah, so let's cast the characters in this melodrama. I am someone who for many years on ESPN criticized Kyrie Irving mercilessly. I found most of his positions when it came to his relationship with LeBron James, just for example, or burning sage on the sidelines of a Boston Celtics game, sophomoric. But here I am today because I think what we all have to strive for is not indict individuals, but understand situations. A huge defender of Kyrie Irving I think that every human being should have the right to make their own medical decisions. And I do not think that we should go about, even if we have the legal right, a corporation, for example, imposing a medical decision on others, especially when, Guy, it does not satisfy the basic minimum requirements of logic or scientific standard. Kyrie Irving choosing to go unvaccinated impacts approximately one person in this entire world, Kyrie Irving. And therefore, I don't understand in the slightest bit how the NBA, the city of New York, the Brooklyn Nets would tolerate saying to him, well, then you are not allowed to play basketball if you don't make health decisions for yourself that we dictate. So where do you think this is headed? 
because he's unhappy. A lot of his fans are unhappy. He's getting absolutely dragged by his critics, of course, including some within the NBA. Does he ultimately just sit out games or or a season? Does he get traded? What happens here? It's hard to imagine anyone making this kind of sacrifice. I don't have Kyrie's salary in front of me, but my suspicion is it's somewhere between 30 and $40 million a year. That's a huge sacrifice for anyone, no matter how much money you've made. Nobody likes giving up money more than rich people. Rich people do not like losing money. It's a common misconception. Just because you have a lot doesn't mean you like giving it up. Everyone likes keeping their money. And 35 to $40 million is a ton of money. So in normal circumstances, you go, yeah, sooner or later here, the, the player will, will fold. He'll, he'll, he'll give up his position. But this is Kyrie. He's a different kind of guy. You know, I mean, he definitely, I think, feels passionately and principled about a lot of things. Like just subjectively, internally, you can see it in him, guy. He's, he's thinking about things. He, he believes in things. And so I wouldn't put it past Kyrie to put this position above his money. If you're picking an NBA player who would, you probably would arrive at Kyrie fairly, fairly easily. And look, hey, here's the thing. And I know that, I know that guy, you're a big supporter of the vaccine. And yeah. by the way, I have had the vaccine. And, but I, I feel like this is my position in some ways has evolved, Guy, and in some ways stayed the same. My position on the vaccine was for me, not for society. I never felt like someone else needed to make a decision to support my health status. And I think science has backed me up on that. And as time has gone by and we collect more data on the vaccine, our confidence – and look, I think this is really something that if we're searching for honesty and truth, we have to say our confidence in the vaccine can't be going up. It can only be going down. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't still tilt in the favor of getting the vaccine to avoid severe hospitalization. But we know it doesn't block transmission. We know it doesn't block infection. I have a friend right now here in Dallas who has two shots of Pfizer running through him. And I think he's really interested and he's a knowledgeable person. Guy, he had his antibodies tested like a month ago. You can go get an antibody test. And his was through the roof. And yet here he is today. He's sick at home with COVID. Pretty, pretty not in the hospital, but pretty bad with COVID. Now, I just think what we should be learning is some humility. And so, therefore, why are we as an in- industry? Why are we as a team? Why are we as a society letting ourselves fall into this cult of the vaccine, which is about pushing it on others? We should be kind of searching for data and truth and understanding how little we know. We should be actually coming to grips with our humility on this. Right. And we do know that the vaccine does reduce transmission compared to those who are not vaccinated. We know that for sure it significantly reduces severe cases, hospitalization and deaths that are those are all excellent talking points and scientific realities behind these vaccines and why I've been extremely supportive of the vaccines. Of course, they're not perfect. I had a breakthrough case myself. I was very public about it. It was exceptionally mild. It was like having a cold. I think having as many people vaccinated as possible is good. I think that is something we should be working toward. I have done that on this show by having medical guests on almost every day for a year and a half doctors who are experts saying these are all the reasons to get the vaccines, all these hesitations people have. Let's address them in a serious way, not a sneering way. That's what we've done here. It's different than mandates. It is certainly different than government or federal mandates on private businesses. And that's where things get a little bit murkier about where people are willing to draw lines, especially now that I think the next big fight is going to be over kids and requiring this vaccine for this virus for kids who are overwhelmingly safe from coronavirus, just thank God, by virtue of being young children. This is one of the few silver linings about this particular virus. And 
what I find interesting and why I asked you about Kyrie Irving is because it's kind of one of these flashpoints in society where people are definitely taking sides. It's a famous person. And there's this standoff underway in the sports world where people, I think, are very eager to see, like, who blinks? How does this resolve itself? Well, the mandate is inseparable from the scientific backing of the vaccine. Those two things are inseparable. I mean, you can make a moral and principled argument about whether or not you should mandate to other people their health decisions. But those that support the mandate believe they are supporting a scientific truism that this is for society. You are letting society down, Kyrie. You're letting your team down. That's what. And so, therefore, then the conversation quickly goes to. Well, that's not true because the science doesn't suggest at all that my vaccine impacts you or my lack of a vaccine impacts you in any way. And, hey, guy, I know we have limited time in this segment, and I'm not someone – I'm not going to sit here and want to have a, um, a confrontational debate with you because I truly believe we don't know how little we know. But I haven't seen the data, and I'm open to you sharing it with me. Any scientific data that shows the vaccine reduces the transmission and infection rate. I have seen data – to support what you said, that it reduces severity. But even that, as we, for example, see cases go up in hospitalizations in the United Kingdom among vaccinated people, I'm not saying it doesn't reduce the severity. I think it does. I also think it has a limited time frame on what it does. It looks like. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the antibodies do natural and vaccine induced antibodies do wane over time. That's another piece of this entire discussion. And look, I I understand the point that you're making about a decision for you versus a decision for other people. I think the argument that we hear from the Biden administration, for example, that we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, that does not wash at all with me. And it's sort of the opposite of what they were telling us for a very long time. So I understand some of the skepticism. I am not skeptical of the vaccines being good. I am skeptical of the government requiring things. And I think as I alluded to, when it comes to children, younger children in particular, that's the next front in this fight. And that's why I asked you about the Irving situation, because obviously he's not a child. But there are currently a few people and situations that seem to be probing what the limits might be of what people are willing to tolerate individually and as a society. And this is one of those sort of uh, dramas that I'm watching with great interest. Another one, Will, that is not at all connected to COVID or the pandemic. It is the departure of John Gruden from the Las Vegas Raiders. Head coach, these old emails surfaced, a lot of bad stuff written in there. I don't think many people will defend some of that substance. He quickly resigned. And now we're having this debate over, is this cancel culture? Is this just a consequence for bad behavior? Does the punishment fit the crime? Some people, and I talked about this yesterday, have made the point, these old emails from an NFL coach cost him his job. Old emails from the president's son about business dealings that the president appears to have not been forthcoming about, those were literally censored and ignored by the news media for political reasons. Other people bringing up this thing, okay, what about NFL players through the years who have done terrible things or even been convicted of serious crimes? They've been given another chance. These are words. Is this fair? What are the standards here? Where do you come down on some of these questions? Because I know they're thorny. It's not just black and white all the time. Well, so I think there's actually a connection to the Kyrie vaccine story and how I view my position on these types of things. I've never viewed that my job, Guy, is to be the chief moralizer, the, the moral authoritarian over other people. And I think that's what people have allowed themselves to become when it comes to the vaccine. And I think that's what's happening with this John Gruden story and what you end up doing 
is playing this this pretend game, this kabuki theater, where everybody involved, all the players, all the former athletes broadcasting on ESPN, all the sports writers, pretend that what they've heard from John Gruden here is not not that it's not shameful and vulgar. It is definitely those things. What he had to say in those emails is universally um, shameful and vulgar. But whether or not it's unique and whether or not it's uniquely indictable, because I would suggest to you every single player has not only heard those things but probably said many of those similar things in a mm-hmm. locker room. I don't think it stops at players. I think that writers have. I think that people in the Park Avenue offices of NFL headquarters have. I think that most politicians, and I think most people at home know that if you search through their history of their life through whatever period of time, because some of these go back a decade, they're not moral saints. And so you sit here and you wonder, you know, like the Bible says, let he who is guilty cast the, or not, let he who is without guilt cast the first stone. We now have a society who's ready to cast stones regardless of guilt. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and they're just, it's a great pretend act. And, and it's only more heightened and exposed by what you said. Deshaun Watson is in the league, suspended, but in the league with 24 allegations of sexual assault against him right now. The, and this isn't without, you know, significance either. The halftime show of the NFL Super Bowl will be guys who have throughout their careers made millions rapping about things that John Gruden put in those emails. And my point is this. I don't think you should banish Deshaun Watson from the league. No, I think he should be innocent until proven guilty. I think people should get second chances. I was never a guy that said, oh, this player has to go because he, he did something bad in his past. I don't, I don't work like, like that. Michael That's Vick or whatever. No, and I say the same thing about John Gruden. So uh, my point is, quit pretending. Quit being our chief moralizers. We can, we can sit here and go, John Gruden shouldn't have talked like that. We're trying to be a more tolerant society, and this doesn't help. But not only is he fired, but he's taken off the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ring of honor. Not yeah, they're removing him from video defense. games now. It's sort of like he must be purged his entire existence because of this stuff. I will say that some of the anti-gay slurs were interesting to me just because, of course, he has the only openly gay player of all time, active player, on that roster in Las Vegas. And to your point, uh, that is part of why I really admired Carl Nassib for doing what he did. A lot of that language is used quite a bit, I would imagine, in locker rooms, and he decided to take that stand anyway. That is quite separate and apart, though, from what you're talking about. Does the punishment fit the crime? What are the standards? It seems like they, they just shift in irrational ways constantly, and it's hard to keep track of and sort of Try to remain principled and consistent because there's so much noise constantly on this stuff. Will, quickly before you go, two quick questions on the sports side. Number one, have you recovered yet from last Saturday uh, in the Red River uh, shootout? And are you just consoling yourself with how well the Cowboys are playing? So you just sort of forget about Saturdays and move on to Sundays. And secondly, who you got tonight, Dodgers, Giants, to move on to the NLCS? Um, the Cowboys are a little bit like a hangover cure for the bad day that is Saturday with the Longhorns. It's true. It's like I had one too many finished long drinks. I'll work into your sponsor there. And the Cowboys victory. <laughs> well done. The Cowboys victory is my menudo or whatever hangover cure you, you choose down here in Texas. I actually never had menudo. I think it's awful, but everybody says it cures a hangover. But um, that being said, uh, yeah, the, but the, the Longhorns are on the right track. So that hurt, but they're on the right track. They're going to be okay. good with Steve Sarkeesian. Um, Giants and Dodgers. I mean, it almost feels like this is the World Series, right? This this is the two best teams. I'm all due respect to the Braves and the the Red Sox and the Astros. Um, what is my prediction? I'm going to go with Dodgers. That's going to be my prediction. Um, okay. Talented from top to bottom, but I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm, I think I'm traveling for the World Series. So, the, how about this? The winner of this is probably going to require me to travel to California over Georgia. Well, uh, bold. 
bold, bold, although I think that's probably right. And look, as a Yankees fan, the ALCS is just a worst case scenario nightmare. So I guess I may have to find myself rooting for the NL moving forward. I kind of think that the Dodgers are going to pull it out, but I don't know. The Giants, most wins in baseball. We'll see. Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, every Saturday and Sunday. His podcast is the Will Kane Podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Will, always appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The hour here on The Guy Benson Show, and earlier today, Quiet Wyatt, our colleague here at the program, really distinguished himself. He was something of a hero. He witnessed something happen on the way to work today on his walk. Wyatt, tell us what happened with this elderly woman. So I was walking into work today, and I saw an elderly woman um, fall. And so I was walking across the street, and she was on the other side, and all of a sudden I see a shoe go flying. And so I stop, and I look around, and no one's doing anything. And so I uh, I run across the street, dodged a car, and and went over there and, and, uh, and helped the lady, help her get up, and... Um, and and helped her, you know, get her bearings, and then uh, I then asked her if she wanted any water because it was pretty hot today in D.C. Got her a thing of water, and um, and then she uh, was traveling down to the metro. But then she said, "I'm I'm going to go back because I don't feel well back to to where she was." So I um, called her an Uber and and got her back home safely. Were there other people who witnessed this and just didn't do anything? Yeah, and that's that's what uh, that's what really ticked me off. I, I don't get don't get too mad too often, but um, when I see something like this, <laughs> that happen, is an understatement, by the way. <laughs> Very even keeled individual here, but you were pretty mad about this. Yeah, I just think of my own grandmother. I think of myself. Think of anyone. If anyone were put into a position where they needed help like that, um, I would want someone to help me. And so I saw this woman go down pretty hard too. And so I ran across and and went to help. And I think that uh, other people were just like walking past or just ignoring it. People on bikes, people walking from the other side of the street where I was on, just looking, you know, like it was nothing. And I was like, wow, like, you know, this woman clearly needs help. She's still laying on the ground and no one uh, no one did anything. So I I did did a good deed. The yeah. <laughs> Good Samaritan, Quiet Wyatt, and uh, that was very kind of you to do. I'm sure Christine appreciates it. Hopefully she's recovered. Oh, I'm just kidding. Of course not, Christine. It was a, a lovely woman in Washington, D.C., visiting her friend as the people of Washington walked right past her in her moment of need, but not Wyatt, our own Wyatt. Good job, sir. Nice star for you. I'll give you an extra star today. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Thursday. Thanks for tuning in. Earlier in the program, we caught up with our colleague Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. He's been busy of late, as he always is, though not getting many questions in for the president because no one is. Here's part of my conversation with Peter Ducey. The president of the United States, I saw the RNC, their research team just tweeted a a moment ago, that the president answered one question this week 
He has done one sit-down interview in the last nearly three months. He hasn't taken a question on Afghanistan in well over a month. He has now had back-to-back days where he has come out and read a very short, prepared statement, uh, one on COVID, one on the you know, shortage of, of workers and economic issues and the shortage of, of uh, goods and supplies and the backlog there. And then he, you know, turns on his heel, walks out of the room. People shout some questions at him. He doesn't take the bait and he just doesn't take questions. Is there a sense of frustration among your colleagues, not just you, but people who are like the access to this president to get questions, let alone sustained questions, is not at an acceptable level? Or are people just sort of like, yeah, it is what it is? I think that there is a lot of it is what it is because the White House press corps a lot of them have been there since pre-Trump, and Barack Obama did not do a ton of uh, just straight question and answer things. Uh, the sense that I get from Joe Biden, though, is as somebody who has spent pretty much the last three years, almost every day of my life with him, he is very aware of what his approval ratings are and what the polls are saying on different issues. When the polls are good, like when he had good marks on the economy and on COVID vaccinations, uh, he wanted to talk all the time. But right now the polls are bad and he doesn't want to talk about it. Afghanistan happens. Polls are bad. This supply chain uh, and inflation are creating headaches across the country. Uh, Polls are bad. Doesn't want to talk about it. And so I think we will hear more from him when things stabilize a little bit more. Uh, but, you know, it, he's also being confronted right now with the reality that it doesn't seem like the the headline Democratic candidate right now, Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, wants Biden around. It, it's possible somebody just said, please, no Democratic Party uh, flip ups until after the election. My full interview with Peter Ducey, Fox News' White House correspondent, is available online at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day around the clock, including weekends with bonus Benson. That's GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back the home stretch, I'm about to go on a little vacation. I am so excited. I've been looking forward to this for months. We will tell you some of the details and get a few tips from world traveler Quiet Wyatt, who just recently navigated all the craziness with COVID and international travel. That is straight ahead. Stay with us. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on The Guy Benson Show. It is Friday Eve, and I am jumping right into vacation. This is something I've been looking forward to for months. We will get into that in just a second. But I will just point out briefly that earlier this hour, during this happy hour, we were lauding, quite rightly, the good deed of Quiet Wyatt helping the elderly woman who fell on the street in Washington, D.C. earlier today. And he rushed over. Everyone else ignored her. He did the right thing. He got her water. He put her in an Uber, sent her back to her friend's house. And I did, in passing, jokingly make the suggestion that the woman that was helped in this case was producer Christine, which is preposterous, of course, because Christine is not in Washington, D.C. She's up in New York. But because the implication was that she might be elderly, and I think that in all fairness, despite having just turned 40, that is by no definition elderly, I'm just concerned 
that producer Christine may not want to speak to me on this segment. And because I'm about to go on vacation, I just want to make sure that I'm still okay with producer Christine because she did not jump in with any angry protestation on the air earlier in the hour. So I'm just I'm just worrying that she's been silently stewing in personal fury. So I want to clear the air. Producer well, Christine, was that joke out of bounds? Was that I wrong? Mean, listen, it's been much worse. <laughs> You've definitely had <laughs> much worse. But can I just say one thing about that whole, I mean, Wyatt's a hero. And I'm sure he's the golden child, another gold star for Wyatt, yada, yada. Not all heroes wear capes, but they <laughs> do wear they wear vests. Fox News well, Yeah, Fox News socks and vests. <laughs> yep. I'm surprised he saw this happen, that he could even put down the Wall Street Journal for one moment to notice this woman's peril and this woman's uh, situation. Uh, But please go on. I just want to say that you were asking, you know, how nobody else could come and help and why it said, you know, he was getting mad. I get it. People do walk by, but I just have to say, you have to be careful because you don't know if that's just a scheme, a scam. Don't forget. I was once robbed, mugged, by a mime. That, that is true. As a, as a, what, a teenager? As a in teenager Paris, in Paris. You got robbed by a mime. It's one of my favorite facts about you. It is, it, for some reason, that story absolutely cracks me up every time you mention it. That, I mean, of course, producer Christine, 16 years old or something, went to Paris, got robbed, and not just robbed, <laughs> robbed by a mime in public. It's just, it's too good. Of course, I do not endorse mugging or robbing. It is funny, though. You have to admit it's funny, but you also have to admit, Christine, if I'm not mistaken, you have refused to be a good Samaritan in the past because of your paranoia. I wonder if that mime situation scarred you so much that you're now so paranoid that it's not just situational awareness. It's worse than that. It's sort of conspiratorial. Wasn't there a uh, a woman who was disoriented? Who needed your help and you wouldn't give it to her because you were you were fearful or suspicious of her? I just want to say I overcame the mime robbery. You know, I I was a stronger person for it, I believe. The reason that I did not help an elderly lady when she came out of her home asking me to help her find her home, I just thought it was a scam. I watch way too much Dateline and 48 Hours and Oprah, you know, after the show. And I listen to way too many crime podcasts that I, this lady came out and she came right up to me and I asked her, please step away from me. Like she was up in my face and I said, please back away. How old was this woman? Oh, I mean, 90s, maybe 80s, 90s. Okay, so like really old, elderly, a, a seasoned citizen. Correct. Sorry, I probably shouldn't say really old. Yes, and she kept asking me to find her son, and then she kept asking me to find her home. Oh, I know it sounds sad, but I was alone. It was almost dark, and I thought maybe like someone put her up to it, and then somebody's going to come in one of those big white vans and just take cookie. And she would not be here anymore. That's what I was thinking in my mind. You thought that they were using a 90-year-old woman who was disoriented and lost near sundown as bait 
to kidnap Cookie? That was what your brain did in that situation? That is exactly what I thought. Exactly. And it might not have been her fault. She might have been put up to it. I mean, look what they do. You know, like the drug cartels in Mexico use children. You never know. Yeah, this was this was like in New Jersey. <sighs> it was actually the, the block next to mine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if you were a block from home? <laughs> it was my neighborhood. <laughs> Christine. Like you're talking like you're in 1980s Medellin, Colombia. You were one block from your house in New Jersey. Yes. And you're like, get away from me. I really Get did. away from me, old woman. I did. Where are your co-conspirators? Show yourselves. Poor woman is already scared out of her mind. In, she kept asking me to come in her house for Senka, which is like some coffee my mom told me that people used to drink. Well, so she found the house eventually is what you're saying. Well, her, she was at her house. That was the whole point. She was in front of her home. So, oh, so she, she was just she was really out of confused. it. But you just yeah. never know. And what I was thinking is if I was, you know, talking you to her. call the cops on this woman. Someone could come up behind me and just take me. So I did call Bobby right away. I mean, screaming, you know, Christine, you know. Screaming? Screaming. I'm like, help me, help me. Like, I think this old lady. Help gonna... me? Yeah. <laughs> you, you are out of your mind. Like, this is a new low, I have to say. Like, I know we make the joke that whenever something slightly goes off or, like, askew in any way, you douse yourself in gasoline and light a match and, you know, run flaming through a glass window screaming. Like, it's not that much of an exaggeration. Here was a, a concerned, confused, disoriented senior citizen who was lost, and she asked for your help, and you called your husband screaming for help for you because you were convinced that there were kidnappers somehow involved in a scheme to take you away. Do I have that roughly correct? You you apparently don't listen to a lot of crime podcasts, do you? Or watch 48 Hours much, do you? I watch enough, but there's – see, this also goes to rationality and risk assessment, and I know those are also not your strong suits. Well – did I mean, Bobby help this woman? Did he come and help at oh, least? It was so funny. So he comes running and it was Sunday and Bobby cooks on Sundays and he likes to tease Megan and I and he always puts on a chef's hat and an apron and that's really all he had on. He had like shorts, an apron and a chef's hat and he comes running <laughs> around the block. This woman asked the wrong people for help. Can you imagine what was going through her mind? She's already obviously like sort of out of it and confused and then all of a sudden there's this nice seeming young lady screaming at her to get away and then a dude shows up running in a chef's hat out of nowhere this must have only worsened her situation she'd probably rather just be on the street and just... she's just like you know what never mind yeah I'll, I'll just i'll just lie down here on the sidewalk for the evening this is less disturbing than whatever you people are up to I feel like the story didn't go the way I was expecting it to go. Yeah, no, you raised this on the call earlier. And I was like, do you really want to tell the story where you rejected helping an elderly woman because you thought that she was part of a kidnapping scheme based on nothing? I did not remember the chef detail, the chef oh, hat detail. Oh, he had a full on. Like, was he white mad with you? Hat. Like, oh, what are you? Oh, what are you doing? Yes, uh, no, he was yeah. completely mad. And then he guided her into the home, and then she was trying <laughs> to make coffee for him. And oh, and then she was. He, she handed the phone to him, and she said, "Please call my son." It, 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 it took Bobby like an hour to get everything settled while I was just outside. Because I didn't. Yeah, you're probably like, "Where's my dinner, Bobby?" Well. 
I mean, kind of. But yeah, maybe I, this was also part of the scheme by the kidnappers. It's a long play to starve you. So you'd have to get your husband involved in this long rescue mission. They're all out to get you, Cookie. They're all out to get you. I'm just kidding, of course. You're a trained spy. You're not as scared of any of these people. Okay, we have to talk about this vacation because we're almost out of time and I'm going on vacation. I'm back a week from today. So gone tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for the shows. We will have fabulous programs, great guests, all the breaking news, guest hosts. Please tune in. Podcast is always free, GuyBensonShow.com. But I've had a few different overseas trips canceled or indefinitely postponed due to COVID. And so I will admit that in recent months, United Airlines, which is my airline, wore me down with their Instagram ads that were targeted at me. And they were very effective where they'd be like, hey, Greece is open. Greece is open. Greece is now open. Look at this beautiful place in Greece. It's open. Have we mentioned Greece is open? And finally, I was like, fine, we're going to Greece. So tomorrow, Adam and I are flying over to Greece We are meeting six friends there, and we're going to the island of Santorini, which I'm extremely excited about. The photos of that place are gorgeous. I've always wanted to go. Once you get yourself over to Greece, they really value tourism. They need tourism. They've been hit, obviously, during the pandemic. So things are extremely affordable. So we've got this villa that we're renting That is very fancy and very posh and beautiful, and it is so incredibly affordable. I was astonished. And I actually did some extra research to make sure it wasn't a scam because there there is a situation, Christine, where I think it's reasonable to do a little bit of due diligence, right? It's like, okay, am I going to really show up at this place? Will it be this nice? Is this a price that makes sense for the market? And it all checked out. So we've got a couple nights coming up in Greece. Go to the beach, go to the pool, maybe uh, get out on the water a little bit. And I have been looking forward to this, honestly, for months. I've got some photos of the villa that whenever I'm in a bad mood, I actually pull up these photos and just look at them. I'm like, I want to go to there. And I'm finally going to there tomorrow. And, Christine, we don't have much time left, but do you have any preemptive Curious Christine curiosities? I know you'll grill me when I'm back, Well, but— Yes. You seem to have questions in advance. This is not a question, Guy. I just want to say something to you. Mm. I am so looking forward to our vacation. Um, As you know, I am off the same amount of time that you are. So you just let me know exactly when and where to meet you. And I look forward to breaking bread. Well, no, and the thing is, nope, nope, nope. And here's the thing. This is not even a credible threat because you were supposed to go on an overseas vacation yourself during this exact same stretch of days and then you panicked and canceled it and decided to go to Florida instead because you were too terrified to leave the country even if it meant going to Aruba am i correct about that yes i but i am not afraid of desantis no way so but yes. you panicked over Aruba, but now you're what? This empty threat is that you're going to show up in Greece? Fat chance. You wouldn't even leave the hemisphere, Christine. That's true. I, I was trying to really make a, a, a little threat. But yes, uh, I will be <laughs> off the same amount of time. I, I like to take off when you're off. So then we're, we're working together. Isn't that nice? That's what mm. best friends do. It's very sweet. But I, I will be ahead. in Florida. I'm very excited. Yes, I did. I did panic and we did cancel Aruba because my fear was if I got stuck in Aruba, then Megan is staying much longer with Judgy Joyce than she needed to. And that's just not fair to her. 
Okay, but you could get stuck in Florida too. It let's you know, let's just not explore this new irrational fear. And we'll just leave it at that. I will just point out because of COVID, there's all these hoops you have to jump through. And you know, we're flying in directly, but then we're flying out through Germany. And what do you need to present in each country with the vaccination cards and tests and all this stuff? And you have to enter stuff and upload it onto apps. It's a whole production. And Quiet Wyatt did all this recently when he went to Italy. And he literally brought an entire binder of resources to make sure that he had it all under control. We will not be doing a full binder full of things, but he has been helpful. A few pointers. You need these tests, not those. So Wyatt gets an extra gold star today, even if the binder approach was a bit much for my taste. Now, of course, if I end up getting stranded for some reason because I didn't have a binder, he will have the last laugh, by which I mean he will have a very quiet chuckle to himself. But I am feeling confident knock on wood, that we will get all of the logistics straightened away and we will have a nice, relaxing time away from a couple days, then back at it. But even though we are off briefly, the show is not. The news cycles continue. We will have full coverage here on The Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 p.m. every weekday and around the clock on the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. From Milwaukee, Wisconsin, have a great night. I will see you a week from today here on the radio. Enjoy the shows in the meantime, and have a great weekend after tomorrow. It is The Guy Benson Show. to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.